Welcome back to the 150th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including did Ron DeSantis really win the debate that happened Wednesday night? There's a new attack on the new right, and we'll talk about that one more in the middle, and an interesting article talking about a bill that's going through right now that could actually shut down some of the more extreme elements of the Republican Party. And of course, we will end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. But that's enough rambling for me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. So if you guys watch the debate or even if you're getting some of the post-debate clips, which obviously don't do it full justice, but... I understand not everybody has the time to watch the debate. Not everybody's a political junkie like me. Who do you think won the debate? I think some of the takes from the people, the pundits, were not accurate whatsoever. And I think this first article is kind of missing some important information. I I do understand some of their point of view, but it doesn't mean I fully agree with it. So we're going to jump into that one here right now. And it comes from the New York Post. Ron DeSantis was winner of the first 2024 Republican debate, man best suited to unseat Trump. And I'll start off by saying maybe it's true that he's the man that is best positioned to take down Donald Trump, to get him out of the way, and to usher in the new era of the Republican Party. And I think that's maybe what the Washington or sorry, the New York Post, really, really wants here. I I think they really want to push DeSantis because they see, okay, hey, he's top of the polls. He's, you know, a little bit of a culture warrior, but also he does fall in line on some of the major issues that are taking hold in the party right now. He is obviously against immigration and wanting to have a stronger border, limit immigration policy. He's kind of turned his position a little bit on Ukraine at first, he made it. He said, "Oh, it's a territorial dispute in another part of the world." And now he's saying, "Hey, we need Europe to pull pull their fair share." So he's he's kind of flip flopping a little bit. He's kind of going back on it. And then again, he never said that he wouldn't get Europe to increase their amount of money that they're sending and the amount of aid and support that they're giving. So it's not necessarily flip flopping, but he's changing the framing a little bit. And he seemed very unabashedly anti-Ukraine when he was first talking about the issue. So he still has some of those talking points that the mainstream Republicans really like. And he's also against Social Security and Medicare. And let's be clear, when I say that, it's not that, oh, he's going to take them out altogether. Like, he has said he's not going to touch them. But we've seen sentiment from him in the past that he's at least willing to reform it as part of his time in the... Congress. So, you know, I think that he may be hiding the ball a little bit on that one. So we'll we'll see how everything is moving forward. But I don't necessarily think he won this one. And that's why I wanted to read from this article, because they try to lay it out like he did. And I want to point out where they're wrong, say where they're right, or at least in my opinion. Quote, only two questions mattered going into Wednesday night's GOP debate. Number one, would any one viable candidate stand out among the crowd? Number two, if the answer to the first was yes, would our champion distinguish themselves as acting as the absent Donald Trump's proxy or setting up a favorable contrast with the forerunner? 
Trump's decision to sit out the first form of the 2024 primary season has been cast as a cautious and cowardly decision. It was undoubtedly the latter, but despite the illusion of political safety, the choice also came with considerable risks. If another candidate was able to command the stage, it would be a strong sign that the race was not predestined to end with Trump atop the ticket, as so many pundits have suggested, end quote. And the reason I wanted to go all the way to the end there is because if another com- candidate commanded the stage, that's how they're setting this up. This is how they're framing it. DeSantis did not do that. He did not command the stage. Now, did he get the first opening remarks? Did he have a few little quippy comebacks? Did he show just the right amount of irritation at some dumb questions and push back? Yes, but he was not getting attacked the whole time. He was not on his heels. He was not reacting, pushing back against some of the comments other people were making. He did not have to command the stage because he was not getting attacked. People were not going after him. Maybe they thought that, well, his poll numbers are actually going down over time. He's not rising anymore, so we don't need to attack him. And also, there was another person that the other candidates didn't seem to like very much. Guess who that was? For those who are watching, you definitely know. Maybe you've seen some of the clips that came out afterwards. But Vivek Ramaswamy, he was getting hit left, right, and center. And sometimes he responded absolutely amazingly. And other times he kind of capitulated. Like the point that he was going back and forth with Nikki Haley. I think that he gave a good response, but he also did give up towards the end of it because she was just attack-dogging, attack-dogging, attack-dogging. And he was eventually like, okay, we're not going to get anywhere. Let me turn to the moderators, agree that we should move on, and smile. And I feel like that was a moment of weakness, even though his response beforehand was necessarily a good one, which is, hey, I do love Israel. I will keep supporting Israel, and I don't support the war in Ukraine. So I don't think that... They're right when they say that command, that DeSantis commanded the stage. But let's, you know, I'm kind of inferring here. They didn't directly say it yet. So let me jump to one of their quotes so they can say it out of their mouth rather than me just implying that that's what they're saying when DeSantis won the night. Quote, it was up to the other five candidates, Ron DeSantis, Mike Pence, Tim Scott, Nikki Haley, and Vivek Ramaswamy, to answer the evening's operative questions. DeSantis answers the first one with a resounding yes. And even if he didn't go for the kill on Wednesday, DeSantis demonstrated a willingness and ability to take Trump on. He's playing for the top prize. Not a place in Trump's cabinet or likely his court in Mar-a-Lago. With his performance, DeSantis cemented himself as the man best suited to unseat Trump as the undisputed champion of the Republican politics. While so many of his colleagues on stage replied to questions with a decided lack of purpose, DeSantis spoke both fluently and passionately. In an opening answer to the question about the political, the populist anthem of the day, Richmond North of Richmond, he wisely pivoted from a musical dissertation to address the more fundamental question. Our country is in decline, he stated plainly, but not indifferently. This decline is not inevitable, it's a choice, end quote. So, yes, I do agree that he had a lot of passion up there on the stage. And sometimes at the very beginning, it felt like he was doing his canned, I'm angry responses. It felt like it was a little bit too much. And he also just didn't look natural up there at the very beginning, which is unfortunate because the talking point beforehand was, oh, he doesn't feel natural. He doesn't look like he's a a man of the people. He's kind of a robot and he turns it on. 
and his smile was a little bit hard to feel, I don't know, a connection with at the very beginning. And I hate using that talking point, but it is true. Maybe it's because we were geared to see it that way, and then some of his small things that would have passed by the average viewer who hadn't heard anything about it, the people that were really in tune to the political system saw it and were like, yeah, I I understand where they're coming from now, because I don't like that talking point. I feel like I've seen him on there, out at the campaign stops, and really empathizing with people and having good conversations but it also did feel a bit mechanical towards the end he lightened up a little bit and he definitely had the passion like i was talking about he answered with a kind of a righteous indignation or a little bit of anger that hey these are serious issues we can solve them but at the same time i feel as though he did not really get his message across as effectively as he wanted to It felt like he was constantly repeating the line that uh, America is in decline, and he wanted to provide a a vision for the future. There's no doubt about that. But sometimes they got stuck in the doom and gloom, and not everybody likes that. Some people can sell that message. I don't know if Ron DeSantis is the man to do that. I think it would be easier for him to sell the message of hope and prosperity, just like he was trying to do with Florida, but he's kind of flip-flopping. He's saying, oh, we're in decline, but if we become like Florida, it will be better. And those are two things that can hold true at once. He can have both of those messages. I just think that he needs to focus on one more than the other. I did like a lot of his personal anecdotes. I won't lie about that. He was obviously taking the advice of his super PAC where somebody, hey, become more human. Talk about the people you're seeing on the trail. He had a few memorized speeches about people that were in terrible positions that were hurt by certain policies. I believe one was from Texas. I believe one was from Florida. So he's not just focusing on Florida, but he's also talking about other states that he's visited during his campaign. So he is trying to show that human side. And I think going forward, he definitely looked the most presidential. He didn't necessarily get down in the mud. He gave the answers he needed to get. He responded when someone called him out directly, but not in a totally crazy way where they were yelling over one another like you sometimes saw Haley and Vivek or Christy and Vivek, or Pence and Vivek. If you notice here, it's kind of Vivek that was doing a lot of the talking. And that's why I think he's going to come out on top. He was getting hit with a lot of ammunition, or a lot of munitions, on Wednesday night. And he responded well to a lot of them. He did stumble every once in a while. He did come off a little smug. And, you know, I didn't necessarily recognize it until someone actually said it. And then I went back and watched some of the clips. I was like, yeah, I guess you could definitely see this as smug. And not everybody's going to like that. But he tried to bring a levity to the stage that I think is sorely, sorely missed in our politics. Nikki Haley, I mean, canned response after canned response. And, you know, she is a foreign policy queen. So on the foreign policy issues, she had a lot of good talking points. She was really strong on some of those. And on abortion, she was, you know, uh, she took her normal stance. So, you know, I didn't think that she was outstanding. I think Tim Scott was a little mechanical at the beginning. You know, he looked a little awkward there on stage. He gave some personal anecdotes, though. He was a little bit funny with some back and forth with the moderators. Oh, I'm a Southern boy. I talk slow. He's used that one before. And I think that he came out probably a little bit better than he went in. Mike Pence. Now, depending on whether you like the fact that he's being an attack dog, he's being a little bit sassy, which some people have argued is actually the part or the person that Mike Pence really is, and he's just letting it out. 
that'll really shape how you think he did in this debate. If you like the little bit of sass, if you like the comebacks, if you like him not just sitting there, but also trying to be a strong man, because he was definitely the strong man on stage. He was the strongest person there saying, we are the most amazing nation on this earth. We are God's people, basically. And we have to project strength across the world. If you like that kind of message, Pence was your man. So overall, I think that they're right when they say Bergam didn't really go anywhere. Asa Hutchinson didn't do anything. Christie was getting booed. He was really just attack dogging some people. He had a great line about ChatGPT to Vivek Ramaswamy, though. So we'll see about him. Tim Scott, Nikki Haley, they were, you know, mediocre. Maybe get one point boost through the rest of the process to the next debate. I think Ramaswamy came out on top, in my opinion. I think Pence came in a close second just because of the amount of time he had and how coherent his message was. And DeSantis comes out third. But, the you know, the New York Post definitely does not agree with me here. But that's the beautiful thing about America. We can have these disagreements. We can watch this and see 10 totally different things. So speaking about seeing two totally different perspectives, we have an article that comes from the Washington Examiner, the tired attack on the new right. So what they mean by the new right is kind of these more freedom caucusy, these Matt Gates, these maybe Margie Taylor Greens, I believe Chuck Grassley as well. These kind of new age Republicans that don't necessarily hold to the party line. They're trying to push back against the not so populist Republican Party. And they have gained some traction over the last few years. They have definitely spoken to the MAGA base or the more populist base of the Republican Party. They've been able to gin up a lot of support, love, even even some hate. But the mainstream Republicans, the ones that would probably join the Lincoln Project or may just want to be a little bit more center-right, who aren't necessarily appealing to all the populist demands, they are most definitely coming after some of these Freedom Caucus members. They're outright attacking them. They're saying things about the MAGA base that you know MAGA people may not enjoy. And there have been these constant reprimands of their agenda. So the question is, what's being done about it? Who's pushing back and why? And also, there's a little bit of interesting information here at the beginning about the principles that these new Freedom Republicans are really hitting on, and I feel like it really sets the stage in order to talk about these. Quote, you probably missed the latest declaration of conservative principles and the such. It came out in mid-July. It signers, all of them freedom conservatives, and their statement reiterates the basic totems Conservative Inc. has held for the past 30-plus years. Free trade, lower deficits, higher immigration as the principal driver of American prosperity. One writer said that the statement marked a new chapter in American conservatism, which is an interesting way to advertise the last chapter in American conservatism. Another at the thoroughly anti-conservative magazine Reason called it a much-needed breath of fresh air. The statement follows a year behind a similar document put forth by the New Right or the National Conservatives. The NatCon signers 
Michael Brennan Daudry admits he finds a little quibble with the Freakons' soft verbiage, but many of the signers have been explicit. Their reason to exist is to fight and exclude the new right, as associating with men such as former President Donald Trump, Governor Ron DeSantis, J.D. Vance of Ohio, the senator, and Representative Josh Hawley, and others willing to wield government power to fight the revolutionary left. So what it highlights, these freedom conservatives, uh, I had them backwards when I was talking about them. The freedom conservatives are the old conservatives. The national conservatives, they are the new conservatives. And it is maybe a little bit interesting with the framing of the NatCons, the national conservatives, but it, it does make sense to some degree. They have a little bit more protectionist policies. They want to make sure that Americans' econo- the American economy thrives, that all the jobs that we have for industry are tr- being located, or at least as much as possible and as cheaply as possible, can be located in the United States to foster growth in that sector of the job market. And, you know, they do have some policies that are, I don't want to say nationalist, because that term is loaded, but they focus more on the American nation and want to put it first. So that's why you could say the national cons. The freedom cons, you know, I do think that the author is 100% right here, which is, okay, you want lower deficits, okay, more fiscal responsibility, you want free trade, so a neoliberal worldview where we trade with everybody, we don't have preferred nation status probably, and higher immigration in order to replace the lack of blue-collar workers that we have here in the United States. And they frame this as, oh, it's a new conservative vision. No, no, no. This is the old conservative vision. This really is the last chapter, the last 30 years written into one book would be this message. And they're trying to say, oh, no, no, this is new. And maybe it may appear new to some of the people that are just coming to the conversation now because of the national conservatives or the natcons who have been pushing really hard and have brought more people into the political conversation who don't necessarily know what the older generation of conservatives stands for. But as someone who has been aware of politics for quite some time, and even before I was fully involved, I was at least paying attention to what was going on. This is the old message. This is somebody going out with a new Bible. They just printed a brand new Bible, but it has the exact same words and the exact same tenets, and they're trying to sell it as something completely new, and that is not the case whatsoever. But they do have some really strong words for, or at least the Freedom Cons have some really strong words for the new right. Quote, the new right is a faction of cranks, right, Avak Ron, a former Marco Rubio and Mitt Romney advisor, and the principal driver behind the Free Cons. The statement Reason posited is, quote, is an implicit rejoinder to the national conservatism movement of principles released last fall attempts to, quote, use big government means for conservative ends will end, lead to disaster. The free con substack warns. The American Enterprise Institution's Matt Kahani calls it a new front in the war of American conservatism, end quote. So if you guys remember the podcast that I was talking on maybe a week ago, maybe a little bit longer, there's a divide in the conservative party. And I don't mean to linger on this one too much, but it is really starting to show itself even more here. The Freedom Cons and the NatCons, they are going head-to-head. They are pushing back against one another. You have all of these Freedom Con supporters 
who are obviously and very strongly coming out against some of the policies of the nat cons. And if there's one that I can agree with out of all those quotes, it's using government power in order to achieve your ends. Because remember, the government is the ultimate agent of coercion, okay? They have a monopoly on violence. I've said this a million times. And yes, other people have said it a million times as well. But if you end up becoming what you despise, if you end up succumbing to how the other side operates, which is using the federal government as a stick and not necessarily offering a carrot, but using the government as a stick to beat your opponents over the head, to push down your policy, to force people to agree with you, that is not the way to go about it. And there are two reasons that I have such a strong opinion on it. One, it will cause people to hate Republicans more. If they're being coerced by Republicans, then guess what? You're going to drive some of those moderates into the arms of the left if they decide to stop using government as the stick, which I don't necessarily think they will, but maybe they do, and it ends up turning away some potential voters. And the other aspect is it's a pure principle matter. The government should be as far away from the American lives, or at least the federal government should be as far away from the American lives as possible. If you're using its power to push down your agenda, you're not letting the local systems rule. If you're making something illegal in all 50 states, you're not letting each state decide how they want to run their jurisdiction, how the people there want to vote, or the reasons that they vote. They have certain issues that they care about, and that can become null and void if the federal government comes in and says, okay, well, that candidate can't even run on this issue because we're making it illegal federally. So this is something that I think they have a fair criticism on. Do I agree with all of their other policy agenda pieces? No, but I do agree that using the coercion of government in order to achieve your ends is simply buying into the worldview that the left has proposed for years, which is the federal government is the end-all, be-all, and we can do everything from Washington and control the people's lives, or take that back, we can help the people's lives by forcing down certain regulations that they wouldn't necessarily be okay with if they were to do it on a state level. And buying into that game is just buying into the power game of Washington rather than being fully principled, rather than pushing back and just trying to hold the line, which sometimes isn't enough. Sometimes you do have to put in legislation, but it doesn't have to be coercive legislation. It doesn't have to add to the bloat. It can actually limit and strip government of some of its powers. That is a true conservative mindset, which is limit the power of the federal government. So in order to start a new program, maybe you say to the Democrats, hey, you want to start this new program that, you know, I understand where you're coming from. I don't necessarily love it. We're going to put certain restrictions on it. But in order to really get my vote here, we're going to defund another program that is not necessarily doing the people good anymore. And to take benefits away from the people is always a hot topic, and it never necessarily goes over well. But that would actually be standing up on principle. The idea of less government spending, of less involvement in the people's lives, of less regulation, that would be standing on principle if these conservatives there would actually be not necessarily the controlled opposition, but be a direct opposition and actually care about more conservative policies rather than liberal policies. But, you know, that's how it is. That's how it operates here in Washington, there in Washington, D.C. They are just basically one giant party. And now the Republican Party is just taking on different aspects of the liberal agenda and 
vice versa. The liberals, the more progressives have really popped up in the last few years. They're taking on some of the more populist vein that the people in the national conservative side of the Republican Party are also doing. They are coming together and really relying on a populist base. And then some of the NatCons are agreeing that, hey, we need to use government power in order to achieve our ends. And then the Freedom Cons are agreeing that free trade and neoliberal policies like that is the ultimate ends. They're agreeing with the liberals here. The one thing that you could say for the Democrats is that they are united. Even if they disagree on a lot of things, they are one giant voting block. And I do think that there will be a split here coming in in the next few years as more progressive candidates really pop up. And you'll kind of see the same thing that you've seen with the MAGA Republicans who came up underneath Donald Trump. But they, right now, are all voting together. They put their principle, their liberal principles, above the rest of the policy agenda and the rest of the talking points, and they get things done and vote together as a block. And this derision in the Republican Party is not going to help them. So I think for a while the Democrats are going to have a leg up while you see this infighting. And once again, someone wisely told me this a few years ago. I didn't listen, and it turns out that they were 100% right. All right, so let's jump to our last article that comes from Daily Costs. I'm just a bill, a bill that'll shut down MRFF in Congress's white nationalist if they get their way. So... This is a little bit of a interesting one, and you know we're not going to have the most time in the world to discuss it because it is pretty straightforward. You know where the daily cost comes from on a lot of their stuff, but I am just going to read the opening paragraph so that you have an idea of where this article is going to take us. As I wrote in my June 26th and July 14th post, Christian Nationalist Rep. Mike Turner of Ohio introduced an amendment to the National Defense Authorization Act for fiscal year 2024 that would, in effect, shut down the Military Religious Freedom Foundation, making it illegal for members of the military to even communicate with MRFF. The amendment was passed by the House Armed Services Committee on June 21st. It was sneakily inserted into a large end block passage of unrelated amendments that were not read and voted on individually, but voted on as a package with a simple voice vote, resulting in all the committee's Democrats voting for it and ensuring the claim that destroying the MRFF is a bipartisan effort. So, what is the Military Religious Freedom Foundation? It is an operation that works inside or works with military members to ensure that their religious beliefs are not violated by the military, that they can, if they were Islamic per se, they could do their daily prayers and not have it be a problem where the officers would get mad that they have to spend a certain segment of the day, a certain part of the day, doing certain prayers. So why is this an issue to daily costs? Because... As it's put forward by a Christian, they're seeing it as more Christian values being forced down on the military. They're saying, okay, no, 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 you're forcing some of these people to not associate with an organization that could protect their religious freedom and are actually forcing the military to basically say, hey, if you're not Christian, then it's an issue. Now, I think that framing is a, a little bit harsh. I do agree that 
the people that join our military who decide to serve our nation, they are giving up so much. And the least we could at least do for them is ensure that they are able to practice their religion just as under the First Amendment we have ensured in our Constitution as they see fit. And I do believe that this foundation, while it has been in some hot, hot controversy recently, I do agree that it should at least be present. But maybe we should talk about some of the problems that Turner has with the MRFF in order to understand what's going on here. Quote, none of the funds authorized, this is from the bill itself, none of the funds authorized to appropriate by this act or otherwise made available for fiscal fiscal year 2024 for the Department of Defense may be used to communicate with the Military Religious Freedom Foundation, its leadership, or its founder, or to take any action or make any decision as a result of any claim, objection, or protest made by the Military Religious Freedom Foundation without the authority of the Secretary of Defense. And now we're talking back at the article. This means that if a military commander ever responds to an email from MRFF or makes any decision as a result of being contacted by MRFF, that commander could be charged with violating the UCMJ and potentially face a court-martial. Obviously, needing to get the authority of the Secretary of Defense is a ludicrously impossible and unfeasible thing for commanders at the level that MRFF works with to resolve issues to do. End quote. So, the thing here is you can see where their framing might fall apart. Even though... It is saying that these commanders can't directly talk to MRFF and let them influence their decisions. They're also talking about in the capacity as a commander in using resources from the military to do so. If they wanted to do it on a personal level, if they wanted to have a personal conversation with one of the representatives, if they wanted to suggest this material on a personal level to some of the people that are serving then they can. And if those people that are serving wanted to reach out to them directly and not necessarily use any military funds or any funds that are part of the National Defense Act, Authorization Act, then they could do that. But it also does put a lot of handcuffs on these commanders saying, no, you can't let the MRFF influence your position on any of these decisions. So it's interesting to say the least. It's one of those weird workarounds where it's, well, no, you still have the freedom to do it yourself as an individual, but it's going to be really hard for you to do. And even if you are talking to them as an individual, you can't let them influence any of the policies that you're putting in place in your regiment. So it's something that I'd say keep an eye out for. See how it unravels. If it really becomes a problem, if it's actually enforced, then this, this could be a potential religious freedom issue, and it may go up to the courts. And if it's not actually enforced, if commanders or the higher-ups of those commanders that would be communicating with the MRFF don't care and they don't actually enforce it, then it could be a non-issue. We'll see how it goes forward. And I just, I'm happy that the Daily Cost is at least calling this out so we can have this sort of conversation moving forward. All right, let's jump to our last article that comes from Boing Boing, a.k.a. our Daily Delight exceedingly rare and adorable spotless giraffe born at zoo. So I didn't even know that a spotless giraffe was possible, and that's because they are so exceedingly rare. Quote, this adorable reticulated relaf was 
giraffe was born last month at Bright's Zoo in Limestone, Tennessee. Her lack of spots has already made her a media darling, end quote. And yeah, it, honestly, when they said a spotless giraffe, I was like, oh, okay, so it will basically just be beige, white. No, no, this is a fully brown giraffe. Quote, giraffe experts believe she is the only solid-colored reticulated giraffe anywhere on the planet, the zoo claims. And that's exceedingly rare, and we love seeing things like that. And we love seeing cute little animals that, you know, really touch our hearts. If you want to see the video of this little guy or you want to read any of the articles from today, there's a link in the description below that like and subscribe button. Also down there, you can find the link to the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, Podvine, as well as the link to the Twitter. That's at Your Daily Flip. And yes, it is Twitter because I host Twitter tirades and I'm not going to call them XX or Pades, not quite yet. So if you want to check any of those out, they're a little bit less scripted. They're over there on the Twitter page. With all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.